I think not bringing something up is what people think will kind of preserve the relationship, but actually not bringing something up is what will doom the relationship. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, come from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, so glad you are joining us for this masterclass on relationships as we explore the ins and outs of human connection, love, and growth on the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, episode number 278. Really excited to have you here with us. I'm sure you're going to be able to align with me in some capacity when I share this. Who we spend our time with, or better yet, who we share our experiences with in this lifetime. It's one hell of an important decision. Just think of that quote, proximity is power. Well, let's be honest, if proximity is power, it could also be the opposite, can it? So on that note, relationships can be complex to an extent. Factors of our conditioning, our programming, our desires, our emotions, what we're attracted to, what we think we're attracted to, what we're really attracted to, all of it comes into play. So who better than one of the leading experts in the realm of relationships to help us decode this topic today? Our friend Lori Gottlieb is joining the show, psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which has sold over 1 million copies and it's currently being adapted as a television series. In addition to her clinical practice, she is the co-host of the wildly popular Dear Therapist podcast, which is produced by Katie Couric, and she writes the Atlantic's Dear Therapist advice column. She's a sought-after media expert. I mean, she's been all across the board. The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS, CNN, NPR, the list goes on. Just to add one more thing, her TED Talk went viral. You can check that out in the show notes of this episode, but I want to give you a couple more things that you're going to hear in this particular episode. In this episode, which is most likely an episode we should all listen to twice, including myself, because I am no relationship in this realm, but we want to continuously progress. We want to continuously grow. That's why you're here. That's why you're tuned into a podcast. This is why you show up for yourself. We're going to be covering a few things. A few things that really stood out to me in this episode are, number one, we marry our unfinished business. I needed to know what that meant. We're diving into that right away. Number two, what will doom our relationships? In fact, The thing that dooms our relationship is the choice most people often make, and we need to do the opposite. I'm really excited for you to hear what that is. Thirdly, we need to be utilizing our relationships for a catalyst of growth. In fact, what we specifically talk about on this topic is how we can find seasons of being single as really a way to avoid growth per se. Very interesting conversation. We're diving into so much more than this, but on that note, I'm really excited for you to check this out. There's people in your life that need to hear this though. We are covering all spectrums of relationships, whether you're single, just starting to date someone, you've been dating someone for 10 years, you just got engaged, you're married. We're talking about it all. There's someone in your life that needs to hear this. So make sure you are sharing it with them. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Lori Gottlieb. Lori, welcome to Decoding Success. Really excited to have you here, as just mentioned. Not sure how this is going to go in regards to all of the different topics we could potentially talk about, but there's a lot to cover and I'm really grateful for it. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So first question, how are you? I like to, being that we're like 270 plus episodes into this journey of podcasting, I think it's important to ask the guests how they're doing. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Do you Um, get asked how you're doing? 
I don't. You are the first person to ask it back, so I appreciate it. But I am super excited. I, I've just had a very good day, and the energy is buzzing, and it's super high, so I feel pumped for this. In fact, I want to ask you about something that I just heard you say. I, I like to watch interviews to understand a person, to understand their tonalities, to understand their body language, and really you know, get a whole perspective of the person. And I just heard you say something so interesting. You mentioned we marry our unfinished business. And I said to myself, I need to write that down. First and foremost, what does that mean? Yeah. So I think it's so important for people to understand that because so many times as a therapist, I see this, you know, when couples come in and it's really interesting when they realize, wait a minute, I've been hurt in this way before. And they didn't realize that when they married the person or when they got into the relationship with the person that they're with. And so it's so interesting that when you see people who over and over keep dating people who disappoint them, who hurt them in a specific way, you realize that this is a familiar story. And if you haven't processed the ways in which you experienced loving relationships that maybe were not comfortable loving relationships, in the past, you will repeat those. Mm. And so it, it's interesting because, you know, in, in my book, and maybe you should talk to someone, there's a, there's a woman that, whose story I tell, and she's in her 20s, and she keeps dating the same kinds of people, the people who, you know, are going to kind of be very hot and very cold, so she's always very confused, or somebody who drinks too much, or somebody who's very unreliable, or somebody who love bombs her and then disappears. And these are all things that she experienced growing up. But when she meets these people, she thinks they're different. You know, like this time I'm going to, I'm going to master this situation. This time I'm not going to put myself in a situation like that. And what happens is our unconscious has radar for the people who feel familiar. Mm. So even if the familiar was miserable, we still gravitate toward the familiar. That's where our unconscious goes. Again, if we haven't sort of processed it or understood it. So when we see someone like that, we're like, you look familiar, come closer. And then we realize, oh, this person has anger issues. I didn't realize that except your unconscious did because your unconscious picked that person. Absolutely. It leads me to ask you, being that it sounds like processing what we experience in relationships is a major key here, how do we actually process it? I think that a lot of people feel like the way to heal from the earlier pain is to find someone different who's not going to hurt them in that way. And that's just not the whole story. The story is you need to figure out how to integrate whatever you experienced into your present so that when you show up in a new relationship, you're showing up having really, un it's not just understanding it, it's kind of making peace with it. And also telling a new story. So we all carry around these faulty narratives. And a lot of them are old narratives from childhood. You know, whatever the people around you made you think about what your story is. You're unlovable. You can't trust people. You know, you're this, you're that. Whatever those messages were. And then we start to believe them. And then, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, we tend to act them out in the real world. You know, it's like intellectually, you might say, well, I know that it's not true that I'm unlovable. But then we go through the world thinking, maybe I am unlovable. And then we act that out in relationships. Or I can't trust anyone. And then we act that out in relationships. So going back to the quote, right, we marry our unfinished business. Is the business ever finished? 
you know, I think that the business lives with us, but it lives with us in a different way. So it doesn't impede our functioning. That's when you know that the business is there. It's always a part of you, but you've made peace with it in a different way. It doesn't rule your life. Who's in the driver's seat? If you haven't processed it, the business is driving the car. And what you want to do is you want to put the business in the back seat and say, okay, I know you're there somewhere. Maybe you're in the trunk, but I'm driving the car. You have no control over this car. Absolutely. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I've personally had to do that with ego and other things in life where it's like, all right, you notice this is this is taking place. I'm curious what it takes. Maybe it's a muscle and it takes repetition to be able to put that business in the back of the car to be present enough, conscious enough, mindful enough to operate in that sense when it comes to relationships. Is that accurate? Yeah, but it's not just noticing it. That's the first step. We like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So just because you notice your pattern isn't enough. You have to really work hard in the moment to slow yourself down and say, okay, I'm noticing this and I need to do something different because my instinct, my knee-jerk reaction is going to be to do the thing that I've always done but that hasn't worked out well for me. That actually is self-sabotage that gets in my way. So what am I going to do differently? And the first thing you have to do is to slow down, is to take some breaths and slow yourself down so that there's some space between, you know, there's a quote in the book that says, between stimulus and response lies our freedom. So there's the stimulus, take some breaths so you can choose your response instead of just acting out an old pattern. Mm, I love this. I love where this is going. I, I saw something recently that essentially said something along the lines of, we meet numerous different soulmates in life, right? What's your take on that? And the reason I'm asking is because if we marry our unfinished business, and I'm going to tie it all in with that, I see that as we can go from partner to partner to partner to partner until we you know, finally settle with one or whatever it may be in every individual's life. As long as we're processing that, we're continuously leveling up, it seems like, right? We're like we're, we're taking the good and the bad from those relationships, applying it, doing what we have to do to grow into the person that we can become. But when I saw that soulmate, I think it was like a meme on Instagram or something of that nature. And it said that we have numerous different soulmates in life. Do you agree with that? Well, I think a lot of people confuse soulmate with, again, that person that you're drawn to in a way that is outside of your awareness. And, you know, it's kind of like when you keep choosing people and you think they're your soulmate, but they end up not being, that's when you have to say, if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. So (laughs) it's not necessarily those people. It's that what's the common denominator here? It's not that, you know, everybody's awful in the world or, you know, it's like you're choosing people in a certain way where it seems like they're going to be your soulmate, but then they're really a version of the last person you dated. It just, they might look different, but there's something kind of in a visceral way that is you are drawn to and that is not going to work out for you. So that's where I think, you know, we talk about the insight versus the change. Change is really hard. And the reason that change is hard is because, you know, think about New Year's resolutions. So We make New Year's resolutions and how long do they really last? Because it's not like the Nike slogan, just do it. A lot of times that's the problem is that there are stages to change. And I write about these where it starts with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking of making a change. Then there's contemplation where you're thinking about making a change, but you're not quite ready to do anything about it. 
And then there's preparation where you're going to start preparing to make the change. You're going to start researching whatever you need to research. You're going to logistically do whatever you need to do. You're getting ready to make that change. And then there's action where you make the change. And a lot of people think action is the last step, but it's not. The last step is maintenance. And that's an ongoing step. And maintenance is how do you maintain the change? And the big misconception about maintenance is that if you slip back, you failed. No, built into maintenance is that like shoots and ladders, you're going to slip back sometimes because it hasn't become habitual for you yet. It's going into a place of uncertainty. It's going into a place of newness. It takes a while for that to become the normal habit in your life. So when you slip back, instead of self-flagellating, which most people do, like, oh my God, gosh, I ate that and I wasn't supposed to eat that because I'm going to be on this healthy diet. Or I called that person at three in the morning and I promised myself I was never going to call them again. And so I failed at that. You didn't fail. It's you really need to have self-compassion and self-compassion doesn't mean you're not accountable. Self-compassion actually makes it easier to be accountable. Think about if you're a kid and you come home from school and you tell your parent, like, I did really badly on this test and your parents are screaming at you. Is that going to make you do better on the next test? Maybe because you're a little scared of your parent, but wouldn't it help you more in the long run if your parent was like, okay, let's look at what went wrong here. Did you not study enough? Did you not understand the material? Did you need to get help from the teacher? That's going to help so much more in the maintenance phase of change. Self-compassion with accountability. How do we apply these changes? I'm asking this almost selfishly, right? I'm curious, if we process what we learn from our last relationship, how do these changes that we want to implement and are, are willing to take action, how does that, I guess, carry out in a season of being single, right, where we're not dating? Is that a part of the process? So many people say that you need time to yourself before you get into another relationship. I don't always agree with that. In fact, many times I don't agree with that. Mm. I think we learn so much in the being in relationship about ourselves. So you can theoretically learn things about yourself, meaning, oh, I see this pattern now. Well, that's important to know. You're going to see that pattern come up so much more quickly when you're actually in a relationship right. with someone, if you're in therapy at the same time, or if you're doing something to be self-aware at that time, if you have some kind of external observational voice coming in to help you see what's going on as it's happening. So for clarity, are you saying that if you still feel heartbroken, you should still date? No, I mean, I think that I'm saying if you, you look, if you if you're heartbroken, that's not a good time to meet someone okay. new. But let's say that you're saying I'm having trouble in relationships and I don't know why. So let me just go and think about that. Well, you can go and think about that and learn about that. But when you see it in action, when you're actually with someone, then you're going to learn about it a lot faster. Mm. So no, don't go into a relationship if you're heartbroken. That's not fair to you. That's not fair to the other person. But I'm saying if you feel like I would really like to meet someone right now, I'm in a place where I'd like to do that. But for some reason, I keep getting into relationships that don't work out. A lot of people say, spend time alone and figure it out. I say, let's do the figuring out simultaneous to being in some kind of relationship so you can watch it happen. And by the way, being in a relationship, it doesn't mean just go out and find somebody to experiment with. <laughs> what I mean is go out and date, try to meet someone and see what you're doing on dates. See what happens. Like, let's look at what's happening on those dates. Even. I guess what if we're not acquainted with the speed in which a relationship will reveal things to us, right? What if we're used to learning slower? 
Is that still something you would recommend? Yes. You can take a relationship at your own pace. Okay. And that's, that's something that a lot of people don't know. One thing that a lot of people don't know how to do in relationship is to really express their needs. Is to say, here's where I am. This is what I need. Where are you? And to be able to have those reciprocal conversations, either people don't know how to express their needs at all, so they just get lost in the relationship, or they are so boundaried in the sense of, here's what I need, and if you can't meet that, we're done, Mm -hmm. right? And they don't take the time to say, here's what I need, tell me what you need, and let's talk about whether there's something that works for both of us. So they go to one extreme or the other, as opposed to being relational. Relational is the I-thou. It's not just the I. Yeah. (laughs) It's the, here's where I am, here's where you are. Can we talk about this? That's the everything of relationship. You know what's interesting about expressing needs? I I just talked about this last night. In my last relationship, and I'm very transparent, very vulnerable on the show. I don't mind sharing this. I didn't express my needs for two reasons. One, because I didn't know what my needs were entirely. And secondly, because I believe I was avoiding some sort of conflict and or judgment casted upon me for looking too needy. So what's your take on that? I, I'm speaking from a male's perspective. Uh, I've, and I, I'm a recovering people pleaser. I'm a recovering of many things. You know, that's just part of my process. But I'm curious, like, is that something that comes up for you when you're meeting with people or what you've seen in the space? Oh, absolutely. I think not bringing something up is what people think will kind of preserve the relationship. But actually not bringing something up is what will doom the relationship. And I think that that's really important for people to take in, in a real way, not just kind of intellectually as they're hearing it now, but to kind of sit with that for a minute. I think that if I don't bring things up, it'll keep the relationship safe. But what keeps the relationship safe is bringing things up. That's what's going to make both people feel safe. Nobody wants to be in this place where somebody's thinking something, but they're not sharing it. That's a really, really difficult place to be. And it's really hard to trust in the relationship and in each other when you don't feel that you are able to have the that safe space to say, I want to be able to bring something up with you. Let's talk about yeah. this. Yeah. And then how is it going to be received is the other part. So, you know, a lot of people when you know, when some, the reason that they avoid is because the other person doesn't want to hear them or doesn't know how to hear them or hears them as criticism or blame. They don't hear it as this person is revealing something about themselves. My partner is telling me something about himself and he trusts me with this. And this is such an honor that he's telling me this as opposed to, well, I don't do that. Wait, what are you talking about? What, right? So they, they take it as, oh, you're saying something's wrong with me. You know, the partner sees that. And no, I'm saying this because I really care about our relationship and I want to make it better. I'm doing this so we can become closer. But people hear it as, yeah. people hear it as I'm doing this because something's wrong with you or this is some kind of conflict. So if we're in the position where our partner is reacting as such, obviously we can't change anyone else, what's your suggestion for someone listening to this that might be experiencing that, right? If if our partner is reacting in such a way, like how do we even navigate that? Well, first of all, hopefully you are choosing to go into relationships with people where you've kind of tested it. It's not like the first time you're bringing something mm-hmm. up. There are little ways that people become more vulnerable in bits and pieces as they get to know each other. And if you start to see that really early on, I would really pay attention to that. Wow, 
this person really has a hard time with this. And I would bring it up really early on if you're seeing that, like, you know, to be able to just say in a really warm, compassionate way, I noticed that when I want to tell you something about me or give me, give you information about me that you tend to hear it as a criticism Mm -hmm. when that's not what I'm saying. And I wonder if we could talk about this differently because I really want to feel heard and I would like to be able to do that for you too. I'd like to be able for you to feel heard, but I want us to have this place where we can talk about how we feel without the other person hearing it as criticism or feeling like they need to defend themselves against it. Absolutely. And see what they say, see how they react to that. If they don't react well to that, then that's really good information to have before you're three years into a relationship. Yeah. I I would hope within three years, right? I'm trying, you know, of course, but I'm saying, you know, a lot of people will spend a really long time in a relationship when they'll say, you know, I knew this after three months. But I didn't do anything about it. Now, is that because that's comfortable for them? Is that the familiar coming back around? Partly it's because they think, oh, it's not a big deal or I can change them or, you know, we don't go into a relationship thinking that you're going to change anything about the other person. Mm. They don't come a la carte. Like I'll take a little (laughs) bit of this without the defensiveness, right? (laughs) Right? I'll take this, but I want to substitute that quality. They come as they come. Mm. There are no substitutions. So that's on the menu. No substitutions. They come as they come. So you can influence them. And what I mean by that is often when I see couples and they want something to change in the relationship, I always say to them, what do you want to do, each of you, with yourself to make this relationship better? Even if the other person doesn't change at all, what can you do to make this the best relationship possible? And they can each definitely come up with something, right? Even if they feel like the other person is 90% responsible for the problems in the relationship. They can say, well, I could be more understanding. I could be a better listener. I could, you know, this or that. And so, okay, when you do that, the other person will be influenced by Mm. that. Usually, the other person reacts to you. It's like when two people are in a relationship, they're doing a dance. And if you change your dance steps, they will either change their dance steps too, or they'll fall flat on the dance floor. Yeah. But good to know whether they can dance with you or not. I love your analogies. Like I definitely appreciate them. I want to work a little backwards here. You were talking about testing, right? And I've been someone that has wore a facade in relationships before. And then when the real me was revealed, you know, things were different. So my question is, how do we get past that facade phase or stage of the relationship? Is there any tactical way to go about that to make someone feel comfortable enough to show you the real them? Because at the time, and I'm speaking from experience, I you know, had a lot of insecurities, which is why I wore that facade. But when it comes down to, you know, avoiding something that you're seeing three years into the relationship, it's like, wait, I just spent three years, you know, with the person. I'm curious, like, how do we move past that or at least allow someone to feel safe enough? I guess that's a good term, safe enough to be them, you know, their true self. Well, I think just it's human nature that as the Chris Rock joke goes, you know, when you're first in a relationship, you're not you, you're the ambassador of you. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, we all want to put on our, you know, to show our best side when we're, we like someone and we're getting to know them. So of course we're going to do that. But I think that, (laughs) you know, at the same time that you're doing that, you're also being real. And being real isn't like, let me tell you everything about my family history and let me tell you about these qualities. But, you know, because I think that people confuse vulnerability with oversharing. And that's not what vulnerability is. Vulnerability is really organic. It's I'm here with you right now and we happen to be talking about this and there's something organic that I want to share with you that 
is related to what we're talking about. And more of that comes in the more time you spend together, the more real time you spend together. You know, when people are just having sex or, you know, they're doing all the exciting dating things in the beginning, but they're not actually talking as much. They need to make time for that. They need to kind of slow things down. It is very exciting at the beginning of a relationship and you can have the excitement and slow things down a little bit so that you really, both of you really know who this other person is that you're getting closer to. You wouldn't, you know, in any other situation, you wouldn't just immediately get close to somebody. Think about it. You know, like we always take time to get to know other situations Mm. because we have to be protective in that way. We have to be able to trust (laughs) that what we're doing is safe. But when it comes to romantic relationships, that gets thrown out the window. And we're like, oh, I don't know this person at all, but I want to marry them. (laughs) You know, right? So I always say, you know, like, slow things down, keep the excitement, but slow things down. Absolutely. I appreciate the difference that you pointed out between vulnerability and oversharing. And I want to touch on both of them. Firstly, why do people overshare? I've been there where I thought, you know, I was doing the right thing by moving super fast, you know, and I I wouldn't necessarily say I was oversharing family history, but I was oversharing things about myself. Why do we do that? Well, in a way, I think sometimes when people crave connection, they overshare thinking that that's authentic connection, but it's inauthentic connection. It's kind of forced connection. Let me reveal all this stuff that's kind of inappropriate at this point because we don't know each other that well to kind of just dump out there on you. And so it seems like, wow, we have this amazing connection. We were so open with each other on the first date or the second date about all this stuff, but it's like, you're still strangers to each other. That's not really the right moment to do this. And I think the other part of vulnerability that's gotten confused in our culture is because of social media. So on Instagram, for example, so many times people will write, I've never shared this with anyone and I'm being so vulnerable and I'm just sharing it with you guys, all these people that you will never see or don't know. And then they'll say that thing. And of course, they're going to get a million likes and all the support and all of that. And on the one hand, yes, I think that it, it helps to kind of counteract the curated view of life that we see on social media. But that's not real vulnerability. Real vulnerability is sitting face to face, not text, not phone, <laughs> although phone is better, but than text, but sitting face to face with someone who matters to you in your real life mm. and being able to share the truth of who you are with them. That is true vulnerability. And that is so different from a post on Instagram where you're going to get lots of likes and props for that. That's not looking in someone's eyes, holding their hands and saying, here is the truth of who I am. And I am entrusting you with this piece of me. You beat me to my next question. I, I was going to ask you if there is a thing, I guess, too vulnerable. Like, is that a thing? And the reason I was going to ask that is, and I guess it goes for whomever, right? I, I think, and I speak from a male's perspective, I think men have been taught in society today and culture today that being vulnerable, you get rewarded for that. But you just gave an example, right? Anyone, that applies to anyone because if you post on social, like you just said, and I've never shared this with anyone, and then you get the millions of likes, that's reward. But you beat me there. It's interesting. Well, actually, it's interesting because there's still so much stigma around men and vulnerability. Mm. And I'll see men come into my practice and they'll say to me, I've never told anyone this before. And then the thing that they end up telling me is like something that women talk about at lunch. You know, <laughs> like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, but to them, even if they, they're like, have a great relationship and they have, you know, a close family and they have good friends, they literally have not told a soul because 
there's still such stigma around men and vulnerability. Women will come in and sit on my couch and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my sister, my mother, my best friend. So they've told like one, two, three people. Men have literally told nobody. And then what women say, you know, is usually something that, you know, they really haven't, it's not the kind of thing they would talk about over lunch, right? right? So you can see this is culture. This is not something inherent in how we're born. This is what the culture has taught us. And I see this in couples therapy. If I'm seeing, I see all kinds of couples, but let's say I'm seeing a heterosexual couple and the woman usually is the one who says to the man, you know, I just want to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. I want to get closer to you. I feel like we've been kind of disconnected. I wish you would share more with me. And then he does. And let's say he starts tearing up or let's say he starts really crying. Inevitably, she will look at me like a deer caught in the headlights. And what that look is, and we end up talking about it, is I don't feel safe when he doesn't share with me because I don't feel close to him. But I don't feel safe when he's crying in front of me either mm. because that is the toxicity of our cultural conditioning. So it's not just that men aren't sharing, it's that women feel an awkwardness around it too. So we have to change everyone, everyone's perception of what does it mean to be a strong person in the world? And you are a strong man if you have the strength and the courage to be vulnerable. That is not a weakness. That shows courage and bravery and strength and sense of self and confidence. I appreciate you sharing that. Because I've experienced that before where, and you know, you could speak from your point of view. I, I can only speak from a male's point of view where I've seen and dated women that wanted the vulnerable emotional man. But then when they saw that side, they changed, right? And although I didn't let that close me off is something that, you know, you go home with and you're like, shit, like, what did I do? You know, should I have not been that person? Should I have been that person? So it is a confusing time to navigate, I guess, as a male. Which, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, but what I think is nice when that happens in couples therapy that maybe didn't happen in the times that you did this is then we're able to talk about mm. it. And we're able to say, look what just happened there. You want to be close to him. He gets closer to you but in a way that you've been conditioned to think makes you feel unsafe. And then when they talk about it, it completely changes the way that they interact with each other because she notices her cultural programming, he notices his, and then they're able to kind of transcend that. And if you and your relationship or any men who are listening to this are able to say, if they notice that someone changes because they've opened up to them, to be able to say, and this is such a sign of strength, to say, I really wanted to be close with you and I opened up to you and it seemed like maybe that made you feel uncomfortable. Mm. Can we talk about that? Right. Like how much respect are you going to have to be able to say that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That takes courage right? too. Like how yeah. much, it takes courage, but, but how, like, how can someone not have respect for you? If you say, Hey, it seems like you got a little uncomfortable there. Let's talk about that. What just happened? I want to ask you this. And I, I know you're friends with Lewis Howes and I really admire something that he did in his current relationship. How soon is, and you know, I, I don't say this in a judgmental way, but I want to do this because I think it's brilliant. My next relationship, I want to go into the relationship in couples therapy. Like I think starting off or getting out of the gate with that an unbiased third party as a part of our relationship in a sense to ensure that we're fleshing these things out. I think that's really important. But from someone that's in the practice, I'm curious, is there such thing as too soon or even too late? 
it's interesting because I see so many people come in before they get married, not because they're having problems at all. In fact, they're, everything seems great, but because they want it to stay great. Yeah. And so they come in and they say, you know what? We see lots of people have trouble in marriage. We don't want to have that. We want to learn how to talk about certain things with each other, the things that are going to be hard. We can't predict what those are going to be, but we want to learn how to talk with each mm -hmm. other because now everything's great, but there'll be times when things are hard and we want to be able to stay connected during those times. And it's great because they start talking about all the things that don't sound very romantic, right? Like, you know, money and in-laws and <laughs> who's going to be taking care of the kids if they decide how many kids do you want? Do you even want kids? You know, are you on the same page about these things? And, you know, like all of the the kind of logistics and then all of the things that, that just come up, right? Around sex, around everything. And they feel so good going into their marriages. They don't see it as we're having trouble. They see it as, you know, nobody, all the things we learned in school, we learned like science and math and literature and history, but we didn't learn relationship. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't we want to learn that? before we get into the most important relationship of our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's kind of the mindset I have around that. But I want to, again, once again, work backwards here. And maybe this is more out of like total curiosity. You mentioned something earlier. You said phone is better than text. I want to touch on that. And I'm curious to learn why you believe that. And after your response, I'll, I'll share what, what's on my mind. I'm just really curious. Why is phone better than text? And you said in person is better than well, all of it. So I, I get that. Yes. Yes. I, I don't think phone is great. You can't read body language okay. and body language is so important. When you're listening, you're not just listening to words. You're, you're watching the person. You're looking at their body language. This is why we don't do therapy on the phone mm. when we can help it. We're doing it because we need to see the other person. Text is really difficult. You lose, so with the phone, you lose the body language, right? And with text, you lose the voice. Mm. You lose the tone of voice, you lose a pause, you lose the immediacy. So in text, someone can wait a minute and, you know, or they can just like, or they could just be, you know, you get those three dots and then they're racing and they're editing themselves. And on the phone, they're just actually talking. So you want to hear those things. You don't want an edited version. You want the actual version of a conversation. So is FaceTime better um, than they, phone? Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But I think being in person is really is really different too. Even though you can see someone on FaceTime, it's not the same as sharing space with them. In the book, I, I talk about how a colleague had said that doing Zoom therapy was like doing therapy with a condom on. <laughs> that it was that it's kind of like when you're sitting right across from each other in the same space. You're hearing the same sounds. You're not distracted by other things. You're looking at each other without being mediated by a screen. You can see the whole body, which is really important too. Like when I was seeing a couple, they were kind of having a difficult time. And then all of a sudden she kind of moved in and cuddled up to him. And I said, what just happened there? And she said, oh, he grabbed my hand, mm. but I didn't see that it was on Zoom. So it was below the screen. So if you're having a conversation with you know, your romantic partner or someone important to you and you don't see their whole body, you're going to miss things. Right. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I, I have to go back to this. You have the best analogies. In fact, I mean, I want to use some of them, but 
where do they come from? Like, you're very catchy with what you say. I think that way. That's how I think in metaphor. I think that I've always thought in metaphor. I think that's the best way for people to learn is through story. And I think metaphors are sort of little stories. And it's so much more interesting and and so much more lasting when you have a metaphor to hold on to. So I don't, I'm not using them on purpose. It's just sort of how it's how you are yeah thought in story i love that no that's awesome i i agree wholeheartedly i think storytelling is the best you're very good at that curious to learn a question you wished more people would ask you and how would you answer it would ask me personally or about themselves that's a great point but i'll let you go wherever your mind goes (laughs) i think in terms of their own learning i wish that people would ask me more about how to listen how to listen. Okay. What does that mean? I I think a lot of people assume that they know how to listen and they really don't. And that's where a lot of the disconnection comes in all kinds of relationships, you know, friendships, family relationships, work relationships, romantic relationships. Someone comes to you with something and we often listen in the way that we would want to be listened to. So, oh, I can fix this. Let me give them a suggestion Mm. before they've even really told you what they want, and maybe they don't even want that. Or I'm going to just like let them vent, but actually they really want my guidance, but I don't know that. So I always say to people, when someone comes to you with something, say, how can I help right now? Right? Just that's all you have to say. And they'll say, oh, I just, I need to tell you this. I need to tell you this. Right? Because maybe they just want to vent right now, even though you think, oh, I know exactly what kind of advice I could give them. But that's not what they're asking for right now. And maybe they'll come to you like two days later because now they've been seen and heard and understood. And they'll say, you know, that conversation we had two days ago, can we talk about that? Because I'm wondering what you think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now is the time that maybe they want some input. Um, Or maybe if you say, how can I help you right now? They might just be like, I just want to hug. And then they feel better and the whole thing is resolved. Like all they wanted was a hug. Right. So we don't really know how to listen. We don't know how to listen to our kids because we're so uncomfortable with feelings. So our kids come to us and they say, oh, I'm really worried about this thing at school. And we say, oh, don't worry. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Like we talk them out of their feelings instead of teaching them how you can sit with your feelings and have someone sit with you. And be present so you don't feel so alone in your feelings. And so there are three words that I always tell people that are really helpful when you want to listen to someone and let them feel your presence. Because what people really want is your presence. They want to be understood. So the three words are, tell me more. So your kid says, oh, I'm so worried about this. You don't say, oh, no, it's going to be okay. You say, oh, tell me more. Mm And then they say, well, this and this and this. And you say, okay, tell me more. And as they talk, they start to hear themselves. They get more in touch with it. It starts to seem less scary because now they feel less alone in it because you're sitting there with them. And then they start to come up with their own ideas like, but then maybe I can do this and maybe it won't be so bad. That's how they're going to start to think. And when it comes from them, they're learning, A, when I'm anxious, I can go get support and I have resources within myself to figure out a solution. I love that. That's invaluable. Absolutely. So essentially, it comes down to listening to respond versus listening to understand. That's the way that I interpret it. You want to, right, you want to understand. I had a couple who she was saying to him, she wasn't getting through to him. And she said, you know what three words I want to hear most? And he said, I love you. And she said, no, I understand you. Mm. And to me, that was I love you. That is I love you. When you feel understood, you feel loved by the other person. 
Yeah. That's how people show their love. I will take the time to understand the world through your eyes, even if it's different from the way I see the world through my eyes. That right there is love. I love that. I love that. So what's a question you wish more people would ask you personally? I wish they'd ask me real questions like, you know, what's been hard for you recently? Well, what has been hard for you? That's why I asked, how are you? Like what's going on in your life? Yeah. I think what's been hard for me recently is finding the time to write my next book. What's the next book? If you don't mind sharing, can you give us a little insight? It takes people back into the therapy room. Like maybe you should talk to someone, but it deals with, it's all about love. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Why has it been hard for you yeah, to so, find find the time? I, I I mean, I've never wrote a book, but I did help Damon John of Shark Tank release one of his books. So I kind of see the process. It's not an easy one. So, uh, you know, self-compassion is definitely important. But I'm curious, like, what what's potentially stopping you? I think we're going into season four of the Dear Therapist podcast, and we're taping that right now. And I write the Dear Therapist column, and I see clients mm. for my therapy practice, and I have a son <laughs> and family, and all of which are good, you know, great, wonderful things. But I think writing a book is a very internal process. You need a lot of time and space. And it's not the kind of thing you write, or at least I know people do write in between things. But for me, my process is I need everything else off my plate so that I can have dedicated long stretches of time Mm. to write. And so I'm going to have to figure out how to make that happen. I love that. And I've really never asked this, but out of curiosity, what's your process like for going about writing the book? Like, do you put notes in your phone? Do you, you know, start with a skeleton of chapters? Like, how do you go about that? So I was a writer long before I became a therapist, and I've always written things down that are interesting to me, you know, just like observations, things that I see, something someone said, never knowing how I would get, how I would use it, but just thinking it's just something that made me think or something that enlightened me in some mm-hmm. way. And so I have this, you know, these scraps of paper in this file that, that are just there. And sometimes I use those, but mostly because the stories that I'm telling are, are real stories that I know what the stories are. It's just a matter of structure. It's a matter of how do I tell them and in what order do I tell them? And I think like, and maybe you should talk to someone, I was really weaving together the lives of these four patients that I was seeing in my practice, along with my being the fifth patient as I went to therapy, as I was going through a breakup. Mm. And so it was about how do you weave all of the stories together? Because I really felt like no matter how different all five of us seemed, that we all were asking the same questions. How do I love and be loved? You know, how do I get in my own way? How come I don't see my patterns? How do I get through grief? How do I recover from loss? I love all of that. I mean, I have to ask, like, as a therapist, someone that helps other people, do you find it difficult to apply what you've been taught through experience, textbook, et cetera, and do that work for yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what I was trying to do. And maybe you should talk to someone was just to show that, you know, therapists are human. I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race. (laughs) You know, that's what I think makes me an effective therapist is that it's not that I'm sharing anything about my life and the sessions necessarily. It's more that I use the fact that I know what it's like to struggle to help people through their struggles. And I don't think that any person can go through life without at some point struggling in some way. And I think that if we can use those struggles 
to learn something about ourselves, about others, about the world, then, you know, that just makes us a more effective therapist. Now, you could choose not to answer this, but again, just curiously wondering from your personal relationships, do you find it difficult to turn off therapist and transition into human? And I'm asking that no. <laughs> you saw me not. No, no, not at all. And I think that's a big misconception is that somehow we're always therapists. And I think it's kind of like, you know, and in the book, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Mm -hmm. So idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. They come to us and they say, listen to what my sibling, my partner, my mother, you know, my boss said and did. And we say, yeah, they're right. You're, uh, you're, you're right. They're wrong. Right. You go, girl, whatever it is. We always kind of like take our friend's side. That's idiot compassion because we're not actually helping them to see both sides of it. And what therapists do is we offer wise compassion which is we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see so that you can see your role in a situation. Even if the other person has a big role too, you can see maybe it's even your response. Can you respond differently? Mm. And so I think that when you're a therapist, you don't have the vantage point of the wise compassion so much because you're still you. You're still, you know, it's not like you can zoom out so much. And I think that hopefully we're emotionally aware people because we've, we have the tools, but we're not analyzing the situation as a therapist would. We're not looking at the person across from us and saying, oh, right, the way we would if we were with a client. So I don't look at my son or partners or you know friends or family members in the way that a therapist would necessarily. I just look at them as humans. Yeah, that makes sense. It def which is, which is, by the way, how I look at my clients. Like I look, I don't look at them as patients. I look at them as humans. Right. Too. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, you're obviously very wise, like incredibly wise. And I, I really appreciate this conversation. So it leads me to ask you with the little knowledge you know about me or our audience, if we knew what you know, how would our life be different? Mm, I think it's really about how much you would know about yourselves. Mm. So how much exploration have you done on where is the gap between what I desire for my life and what I want in my life and what I have now? And what is getting in the way? What is that gap about? And if you can figure out what that gap is about, that's the work of therapy. I actually have a workbook out based on maybe you should talk to someone because so many people were asking that very question is, how can we learn the things that you talk about and maybe you should talk to someone and really go through what you do with your clients in therapy? So I, I put out this workbook, the maybe you should talk to someone workbook, and it's really about rewriting your story because we all have these stories that get in the way, that create that gap. And so it's a step-by-step very intensive workbook of taking you through exactly the process that I would take clients through as we help them to narrow that gap. What's your advice for someone that picks up that workbook to ensure they're showing up and answering the questions like from their core self versus writing down what might seem quote unquote sexy just to do that type of work? I would remind them that there's nothing sexier than authenticity mm -hmm. and that seeing yourself reflected on the page is one of the most healing experiences you can have. That when you are able to put your true self on the page and look back at it and really embrace that with compassion, that is going to be an incredibly healing experience. But that's not just what the workbook is about. That just happens to be what the process looks like. But the workbook is really about asking yourself the right questions. A lot of people don't know what the questions are to ask. And then what do you do with those answers? 
And so it's, it's really an exercise in untangling all this stuff from before that's not relevant anymore. It's like wearing clothes that don't fit anymore. You know, it's like those clothes should have gone to Goodwill a long time ago, but you're still wearing these old clothes and they don't even fit, but you're walking around as if they do. So that's what the workbook. I love that. So I just want to let everyone know that's tuned into this, the workbook, the book, podcast. What else do you have going on that we should make people aware of? If they just want to spend 15 minutes examining their story, they can watch my TED Talk, which is how changing your story can change your life. And so there's a kind of a a quick 15 minute version of what you're going to find in much more depth in maybe you should talk to someone and in the world. I'll make sure to have all of that in the show notes, including socials, websites, where people can keep up with you. I have one last question before I let you go. It's my favorite question to ask. This is how we end every show. If Lori makes it to whatever year she wants to make it to, you know, God willing, and you write as many books, you impact as many people, you do everything you want to do, but you can only be remembered for one piece of advice, not how you want to be remembered, but a piece of advice that's like etched into the tombstone. What is that piece of advice? Mm, I would say the piece of advice would be that we're all more the same than we are different. We're all more the same. And that we always need to remember that, Mm. that so many times we look at people and we say they're other. Or I'm other, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with them. And that underneath it all, we're just people who want to be loved and understood. And if we could go through the world that way, I think that there would be so much less conflict on both an interpersonal level and a societal level. Do you think the world could ever get to that place? I'm going to keep trying. (laughs) I love it. I think each one of us should keep trying. I love it. Lori, thank you so much for this opportunity. You are absolutely incredible. Again, everyone that's tuned in, in the show notes, you could find all of that good stuff. But thank you so much. Expressing gratitude. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciated the conversation. You have just tuned in to episode number 278, a masterclass on relationships featuring our friend Lori Gottlieb. You could check out Lori in the show notes of this episode where you're going to be able to find her books, her socials, her websites, her podcasts, and everything in between. If you're connecting with Lori on social, which you really should after this conversation, let her know that you heard her here on Decoding Success. I'm sure she's really excited to hear from you. Furthermore, I want to give you a shout out for showing up here today for yourself. Not just yourself, but your future self, your current self, your past self, your past relationships, your current relationships, your future relationships, and everything in between. There is a lot of growth within this episode and you showed up to tap into that growth for you, for the people in your life. Furthermore, I mean, you could be a beacon of light to those people that are in your life, to those people that you are in proximity with simply by sharing this episode. So once again, I'm going to urge you to make sure that you are doing that. And on that note, until next time, everyone be blessed. Peace.